Ezra 7, verses 7 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Good morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I pray, God, that you give us eyes to see this morning, hearts to feel what you want us to see and feel this morning. And I just pray for your help. Pray, Lord, that you would help me to communicate what you want communicated. And we just pray, Lord, that you would be exalted, that you, Lord Jesus, would be seen in all of your beauty and all of your glory so that we would put our trust in you and that we would be able to come out of here saying there is no greater thing than to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that. So please, do your work in us. We're hungry for you. We want your presence here. We want your presence to fill this temple with glory So come and inhabit your people. We pray that you would do a great work here for the glory of your name, for the advancement of your kingdom, and for our joy as your people that you have purchased on the cross. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So uh, next week, Pastor Charlie is going to be laying out a vision for the mission of GCF. And since I had one week to do whatever I wanted, it seemed right to talk about the mission as it relates to child and youth discipleship here at GCF. So with God's help this morning, I'm going to talk about and look at Ezra and Nehemiah, and um, I'm going to do my best from those books to cast vision and put us on mission for child youth discipleship here at uh, GCF. And if you're thinking, oh, that's not really my ballpark, this doesn't really relate to me, I urged you to consider that it does. This is going to relate to all of us because God's word relates to all of his people. In fact, it relates to all humanity. So that's the bigger umbrella that we're going to be looking at. So a um, couple of things I want to accomplish. Two things. Um, aim to exalt God's word among us and help us to see how crucial it is that we know it for ourselves And that we love it so as to actually do God's word and then that we spill over and teach it to our children and teach it to our neighbors and teach it to our co-workers and teach it to whoever else it might be. And number two, the other thing I hope to accomplish is that we would trust only in Christ and nothing else, not our parenting, not our Sunday school programs, that Jesus would be our only hope and our only rock as we seek to bear fruit for ourselves and for the lives 
in the lives of the next generation. So those are the two things that I hope to accomplish. So that's the introduction. Admittedly, it's a little bit boring to talk about, you know, things like that. Um, it'd be, it would have been fun to start with this. I'm going to take us on a little field trip over here. Um, since, after all, we are going to be talking about the next generation, child and youth, discipleship and everything, I thought we could take a field trip and do a little visual demonstration. So um, consider these two bowls, and I'm going to talk about the difference between kind of the Christian worldview as it's revealed to us in Scripture, truth, God's truth as, it, as it's revealed to us in Scripture, and kind of some of the pagan lies that are present in our day today. So if we think about God's truth, uh, think about it in two bowls or two buckets, two different categories. We have things like, um, you know, God is the creator. He's uh, the, the creator, God, and then there's the creation. So there's creator and creation according to Scripture, right? It doesn't mean that God's creation and, and God the creator don't have a relationship with each other that the creation doesn't reflect and display the glory of God and God doesn't love his creation. It just means that God stands alone, apart, and aside from his creation. These two things are distinct. There's good and there's evil, according to scripture. There's male and there's female. There's right and wrong. There's kings and there's subjects, there's authority, and there's submission, there's uh, heaven, and there's hell, there's parent, and there's child. These two things are distinct from each other. Now, you'll notice, I don't want to get myself in hot water, that I did put the female in the same bowl as I put evil in. Uh, That's not what I was intending. What I'm trying to get at is that those two things are distinct. That's what this symbolizes. In pagan spirituality, there's one bowl. There's no distinction between male and female. They all just go in the same bowl. There's no distinction between good and evil. It's just the way you look at it. And there's always a little bit of good in the evil, and there's always a little bit of evil in the good. Right? There's no parent or child. These are distinctions that need to be done away with. Right? There's no God, there's no creation, there's no people that are made in the image and likeness of God and animals. It's another distinction. I don't know if you guys have seen this commercial recently. Um, It's kind of subtle, but um, it's this little girl, I don't know if it's some kind of a smartphone commercial, and she's laying on the the living room uh, floor, and her dog is right next to her, and she asks the uh, the pre-programmed computer chip, um, the dogs dream, and it's so cute and precious. And then the answer, of course, is yes, they dream just like humans and about similar things, right? And that might be factually true, but I almost wonder if that's a subtle way of saying there's really no distinction between human beings who are created in the image and likeness of God and the animal kingdom, right? So in pagan spirituality, there's no distinction between heaven and hell. There is no such distinction, right? So that's kind of the difference between kind of the Christian worldview and the pagan worldview. And I do want to say as a disclaimer, that doesn't represent all non-Christian thought, but it definitely, I think, I would submit to you, it definitely represents thinking that is gaining increasingly, becoming increasingly popular in our day. 
And this is the tide that we're swimming in. Peter Jones, in his book titled Gospel, Truth, Pagan Lies, I highly recommend it. It's super short and easy to read. Um, Gospel, Truth, Pagan Lies talks about the movie, for instance, Lion King. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. I haven't. But he talks about the circle of life where everything in the universe is kind of this mass of energy that's all kind of flowing together, right? And uh, circles are used commonly in non-Christian faiths and cults and whatnot to describe this all-is-one, one-is-all philosophy. That's kind of the one-bowl system that I was talking about. All-is-one, one-is-all, right? There is no God in creation. It's everything. Everything is God. God is everywhere, right? Okay, so, so circles are used to kind of to symbolize this kind of all is one, one is all pagan philosophy. And on the outset, and, and this is another reason why I'm bringing this up, this is increasingly attractive, especially to the younger people in our day and age, right? This, uh, this uh, you know, no intolerance, that's becoming um, increasingly attractive. So... Uh, so, yeah, circles are, pop, are common and popular. Uh, has anybody seen Star Wars? That's kind of a funny question. Believe it or not, I have not seen Star Wars. So I, I was not going to, I should have said, I wasn't going to bring that up to cause any distraction or angst among you because some people get upset about that, actually. But uh, I read about it. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm going to say some things about it because I read the book. Um, <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi, right, explains to Luke Skywalker in language like that of a pagan priest. He says, the force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us. It penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together, right? It is all-powerful and controls everything, right? And apparently in the movie, Luke Skywalker is encouraged to abandon himself and follow his intuition, Right? And as he follows his intuition, he gets into harmony with this force. Right? And what's the force? It's this massive energy that is the universe. And it's only when you let go of yourself and completely follow your desires and completely follow your intuitions that now you come into harmony with the force, which is this notion of God. And then you can do great things. And Luke Skywalker is able to pilot complex flying machines, whatever they are, right? Um, I heard it's a good movie, though. And this explains, does it not, why there's so much emphasis today on what? Following your heart, right? There's a pagan ideology behind that. Pagan spirituality rejects the notion that God is the king and that we are his subjects who are submitting ourselves to him, trying to discern his beautiful, loving design for us. Right? Those two things are in opposition with each other. Rather, humans are viewed as part of God. They are viewed as part of this cosmic energy that create their own reality. Here's another quote from uh, Peter Jones. If we are little halograms of divinity, smaller cloned versions of the great divine circle, then we are uncreated and eternal. What need, um, oh, sorry, we are outside the jurisdiction of any authority, a kingless creation. You see, pagan spirituality, when they hear this idea of a kingdom of God, that's just, no, we don't want kingdom. That implies authority and submission. 
That implies ultimate uh, rule. That's not, no. Right? What need have we to submit to outside rule? If we are God, then we can make our own rules. We also decide our own truth, and children are encouraged to refer to their natural inner force and abandon themselves to what feels right. Each person contributes his piece of truth by constructing his own version of reality. This explains why tolerance is so important. Each self is a source of truth, so each must be tolerated, even encouraged. So again, tolerance isn't just a virtue, or it's not an end in itself. That's that's the way I always used to think about it. It's a means to achieving a greater goal, a greater ideology, in which all is one, one is all, and everyone creates their own reality, and we all kind of work together to this mass, whatever it is. It's a means to achieving the never-realized Christian ideal of love your neighbor. You see, in the eyes of the pagan, Christianity has some things going for it, but with all of its rules, with all of its teaching, with all of its authority, and the intolerance that comes from that, it's essentially viewed as a failed experiment because it excludes and it makes people feel bad about themselves. And it needs to be done away with. So this is why children these days are encouraged to do things like choose their gender. To make their own reality, to follow their intuition so that they will become one with this massive energy that Star Wars calls the Force. Yesterday, I was having a conversation with my son, Ben. He's five. He doesn't like it when I put him on the spot. (laughs) Sorry, buddy. But you're just so funny. Right? And I was trying to explain to him that playing real hockey outside on a beautiful day is more of a productive exercise than playing video games. Right? He shot back at me. Yeah, but my finger thumbs get exercise when I play video games. I'm not ready to let this kid make a decision about what gender he wants to be. That just doesn't seem like a good idea. And this ideology is why respect for authority is diminishing. It's why animals get just as good, if not better, treatment than humans. And it's why tolerance is so virtuous. And it's becoming attractive. So, Keep that in mind. This is the world that we live in. And I want to take us to Ezra and Nehemiah now. Let me turn, turn our attention to these two little books in the Hebrew canon. They were actually one book because it tells the same story. It wasn't until the Christian era that they were separated as two different books. So we really should think about it as one book, as one story. Right? And if you're looking to understand the chronology of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah really uh, uh, talk about the events that happened at the very end of the Old Testament. So really, Ezra coming in to rebuild the temple, Nehemiah rebuilding the temple walls or the, uh, the walls of Israel, Jerusalem, are really the last events that happen in the Old Testament before there's 400 years of silence and then the New Testament comes in. So chronologically speaking, Ezra and Nehemiah are the very last events in the Old Testament. So they're both leaders. 
in Israel at one of their very low moments and very low points in their history. They're returning to Jerusalem from Babylon. So they were in Babylon. All the Israelites were scattered about. They were in exile because um, Babylon came in and sieged the city of Jerusalem in 586, 587 B.C. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the walls, and all the Jews were scattered about, right? And they're scattered about, they're in Babylon, and now they're coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild what was broken. Losing the temple, losing the wall, being forced out of the city was as bad as it could get for an Israelite. God chose them to be his people. You see, God... Uh, he chose them to be his people so that they would worship him, so that they would know his word, and that they would live lives of worship and connection to their living God, and that that way they would become a blessing to the nations outside of them. You see, in God's wisdom and in God's plan, it was actually his plan to be on mission to reach all of the nations outside of Israel by pouring his love and pouring his truth into the people of Israel. That nations, the other nations of the earth, would come into fellowship then with this living God. Right? That was his plan, that he was going to reveal himself to the Israelites. And as they worshipped him, as they lived by his truth, the other peoples of the earth would come to see this is the living God. Right? And going all the way back to Moses, who led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, through the desert, the Israelites would set up the tabernacle to worship their God. And they had to set it up, they had to tear it down, they put the altar, and that was the way that they expressed worship to him. And it was the way also that they were reminded that God was their God, and he was with them, and he was leading them. And he was leading them to the promised land which he promised to Abraham. Right? So they're on this journey going through by Moses, and eventually it's Joshua who uh, leads them into the promised land, and then David One of the high points, if not, I think David is the highest point in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. David is this righteous king, a man after God's own heart, as the scriptures say, right? And under David's leadership, they enter into the promised land. And then his son Solomon gives them the most prosperous, I mean, it's the wealthiest time in Israel. They build the temple. And this is significant because it identifies them as their unique calling to be God's people. God was with them as their God, and they were his people worshiping him. And there was a sense of permanency about the temple versus the tabernacle. So they built the temple, and unfortunately, just as they're right about at the cusp of spilling out into the, into the nations around them, what winds up happening instead? As it has happened time and time again, the pagan ideologies and the false idols come seeping into Israel, and that has a bigger effect on them than they have on the other nations outside of them. It's tragic. Solomon intermarries with foreign women, and according to 1 Kings 11, they turned his heart away to false gods. God raises a prophet after prophet warning the Israelites not to worship false gods. And finally, finally, they get taken over by Babylon, which, according to Revelation 18, if we look at Scripture to interpret Scripture, Babylon is symbolic. 
and is symbolic of the world system that is opposed to God, the worldly ideology that is anti-God. It is symbolic of idol worship pagan practice. So it's interesting that Babylon is what takes Israel over. Israel lost their temple. They lost their identity. They lost their city. They lost their witness. And most importantly, if it weren't for the covenant-keeping, steadfast love of their God, they would have lost relationship with God too. They were gone. But God had his hand on them. God made a promise to them, and God was going to keep it. So this is what actually happens. The sovereign God who sets up kings, who takes down kings, after King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians reigned in Jerusalem for a time, the Persians come in, take over. King Sirius is now in charge, and he offers an edict that allows the Israelites to come back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Hallelujah. This is a great moment of God's sovereignty. Even though this pagan king uh, probably wants nothing to do with their God, perhaps, he allows them to come into and rebuild the temple. So now all the Israelites that were scattered about are coming back. And there's essentially three waves of people. The first wave is led by a man named Zerubbabel. And then the second wave is led by Ezra. And the third wave is led by Nehemiah. So there's three waves of Israelites that are coming back into Israel to rebuild what was lost. So by the time Ezra returns to Jerusalem, the temple was actually already rebuilt. It was physically there. But this gets us to the heart of what I really want to talk about. All that was kind of a setup. And this is what I want us to understand. Ezra and Nehemiah were not rebuilding a temple building. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel were not rebuilding a wall. They were rebuilding truth. They were restoring God's word to its rightful place in the life of his people. They were rebuilding true worship. They weren't rebuilding a city. They were rebuilding a people. This wasn't a building project with stones. This was a building project that would make the people into God's people. It's a worship project. It's a truth project. The problem that Israel faced was a worship and worldview problem. Israel was in spiritual shambles long before the Babylonians came in and destroyed the city. You see, when we see the destruction of their temple, this reflected the destruction that was already in place because of false idol worship. They were destroyed spiritually well before the Babylonians came in and destroyed their temple. The destruction of the wall merely symbolized the fact that they completely lost their identity as worshipers of the living God. There was no distinction between the Israelites and all the other pagan cultures around them. That's why the wall came down. And that's what it symbolizes. I hope we see that. And this brings us to Ezra. 
where does the rebuilding of the temple, where does this rebuilding project really begin? It begins with studying the word, doing the word, and teaching the word of God. Ezra 7, 9. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So this rebuilding project of the people started with Ezra consecrating himself to the Lord, giving himself to the truth of God's word, doing the truth, and then teaching the truth. When Ezra begins his ministry, right? You read this in Ezra 8, I believe. He quickly learns that the people have intermarried, right? And this is a big deal. He tears his robe. He pulls out his beard. This is painful to pull out your beard. I've never done that, but I imagine it's very painful. And it isn't because God is against interracial marriages. He's not against interracial marriages. The reason why this is so unacceptable at this point in time is because it symbolizes a pagan worldview that is now seeping into and taking over the Israelites who are supposed to belong to God. You see, when there's intermarriage, which God forbids at this time in history... It symbolizes the Israelites getting in bed and falling in love with the false God. And God is jealous for his bride. He loves his bride. And he wants his people. And the way that God practically rules over a people is by truth. By his word. The way that we Make God our God is by knowing his truth and doing it and telling others about it. You declare who your Lord is, who your functional master is, by whose voice you listen to and what you stake your life on. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. How do we know we love Jesus? Well, we have to know his commandments, A, and B, we have to do it. That's how Jesus is your Lord. Jesus, God, reigns through his word. And that's why the rebuilding of the people starts with the truth. He wants them to get out of bed with his pagan ideology, with his false idol worship. And he wants them to be his bride, his people who are faithfully committed and connected to him. The litmus test for loving God is knowing his word, doing his word, and proclaiming it. Is it not? The reason why God's hand, if you read Ezra 7.10 or 7.9 and 10 closely, the reason why God's hand is upon him is because he commits himself to know, to do, and to teach the statutes and the rules in Israel. And by the end of Ezra, by God's grace, we actually see the people responding. 
They're repenting. They're ending forbidden relationships. And they're consecrating themselves to the living God yet again. Here's what I'm trying to get at with this. I want to highlight how crucial the word of God is in confronting pagan lies. And how crucial the word of God is in guiding us into a right relationship of worship with the living God. We're all swimming in the sea of Babylon, are we not? And from time to time, we will inevitably gulp up the water. And it will become part of us. And that's why we constantly need the word of God and its truth and submission to its truth so that we will be pointed in the right direction. If we think about raising this next generation, we have to ask ourselves, will they know the word of God? Will they know it? And will they love it? And will they go outward? Brothers and sisters, let's pray together for that. Will you know the word of God? Will you love it? Let me make one important clarification here. Now, I wrestle with whether or not how to say this exactly. I hope this comes off. This isn't about keeping myself or my kids, away from paganism. That's not the highest goal in discipleship. Just stay away. Right? There's no neutrality. What do I mean by neutrality? It means it's not good enough just to say what you can't do. Just stay away from that. Just, just, don't, do, just don't do that. It's like a toddler, right? Have you ever handled a toddler before? You can't just say, just don't stick your finger in the socket. Don't do that, and don't do that. What do you have to do? You have to connect them to something positive, don't you? You have to get their attention going in some positive direction. There's no neutrality with a toddler. You can't just say, sit on the couch and be nice for two hours. (laughs) That's, That's our heart. You can't just say, don't do that. You have to replace don't do with do, do. Because our hearts are, we're worshiping beings. We will worship something. And if not that, then that. Right? We have to channel our kids to what they should be doing. And that's the goal of discipleship. Worship God. It's not ultimately about don't do that. Right? We haven't achieved, we haven't succeeded as disciple makers if we simply keep kids away from things. That's not the goal. It's also, here's another nuance, here's another thing that it's not. It's not winning the argument. It's possible to be against pagan ideology. There's lots of people that would agree it's not a good idea to let a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or whatever-year-old make up their mind about what gender they want to be. Right? A lot of times, we can, in fear, I would suggest, in fear of man, simply want to win the argument and point out how stupid that idea is. That is dumb. How can you think that? Is that our goal, to be right? 
It's not our goal to be right. It's not our goal to win the truth war. It's our goal to win the worship war. We want our kids to worship. We want to be worshipers of the living God. We want to see them enjoy Christ. To pursue him, not because they want to be right in this truth war, but because they love Jesus. Because truth connects them to Jesus. Do you see this distinction? I hope you do. You see, here's a question I ask myself. When I think about raising my own kids and when I point them to Christ, and when I build a biblical worldview for them, I realize that there's a good chance that they might face opposition, maybe even intense opposition, because of what I'm teaching them. I don't know if this ever crosses your mind, but do you ever wonder, do you ever realize that your child may not get the job because of their Christian belief? They may not get the loan from the bank, because they're intolerant. They may not get into the right school. That's a possibility. I don't want to scare us with that, but that's the reality, is it not? So my temptation then is to syncretize and bend. But I realize that's not my motivation. Here's my motivation, and I wonder if it's yours, and I ask you guys, can you look into your son or daughter's eyes and say, my child, knowing Jesus is the greatest treasure. It's the greatest joy you could ever have. That's why we know the truth, because you know Jesus. We fight for truth because we want to know the living God. Jesus is better than any worldly accomplishment that you could have. Jesus is better than any worldly status that you could achieve. Jesus is better. We fight for truth because we love Jesus. And his truth is the way that he is Lord over us. And we know his will for our lives. That's why we teach our children about Jesus. That's why we teach our teens to have a biblical worldview. Not so that they can win and prove everybody else wrong, but that they can know the living God. You know that song, Ferris, Lord Jesus, I was listening to this yesterday. It talks about fair as the meadows, fair still the woodlands, and, um, and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer. And for the one who clings to Christ by faith, all of that is theirs. All of his becomes theirs. It's distinct. They don't have ownership over it the way Jesus does, and they don't become glorious, but they glory. And everything that now, Jesus is glorified. And and all of Jesus' beauty now becomes yours too. When we think about what it means to be a biblical woman, and find God's design, and to live in that, and to submit yourself. Jesus has a beautiful plan for your femininity, young ladies. And when you cling to Christ by faith, you will know his good plan for that. That's what you want. 
And for young men, Jesus has a beautiful, awesome, really joy-satisfying plan for your manhood and your masculinity. And when you cling to Christ by faith, all of his glory in that becomes yours. That's what you want. That's what we want for our children. That's what we want for ourselves, is it not? And then I call us to have compassion. As we think about knowing the truth, loving the truth, doing the truth, proclaiming the truth, let's have compassion for our pagan enemies, unbelieving friends that we might have. Let's realize we don't go to them in fear because perfect love casts out fear. Amen? And we have to realize that oftentimes unbelievers, they want the same things that we want. They want war to cease. Amen. I, don't, I, don't, I want war to cease too. They want poverty to end. Amen. I want that too. Right? They don't want people to be unfairly judged and discriminated against. Amen. I don't want that either. I want that to end. We agree about these things, but where we differ, and drastically so, is the fact that they view God as the problem, not as the solution. We look at ourselves as the problem. Jesus, in love, comes to us and tells us, you're the problem. And here, I've come to fix it, and here is how I fixed it. I give my life on the cross to die for you, to rise again for you. I have fixed it through my love for you. You see, the sinful human condition is the problem. That's the reason for poverty. It's not that people are discriminated against. And if they are discriminated against, it's connected to sin. Here's the last point I want to make. Ezra Nehemiah points us to our need for Christ. I've already talked about our need for Christ, but here's what I mean. We cannot end and rest on our inspirational laurels of, let's go value God's word, rah, rah, rah. Let's go teach it, rah, 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 and everybody's going to be saved, right? That's kind of, that's, that's where we've left it right now. I don't want to leave it there. Because that's not good enough. Because you know why? We'll fail. We won't be motivated as we ought. We will never love God's word the way we should. We'll never value it or treasure it to the extent that is necessary. By the time, and we learned this in Ezra and Nehemiah, you see, there's reform happening. Ezra's making inroads. People are responding to the truth. But really, the books kind of paint a bleak picture. Because by the end of Nehemiah, guess what's happening again? They're turning their backs on God. Yes, again. They're not supporting the Levites. They are caring. They're not caring for the temple. And they are intermarrying yet again. See, when Ezra hears this, he tears his robe and he pulls out his beard. Because this is serious. When Nehemiah hears of the same thing that's going on in his time, what does he do? He curses them, he beats them, and he pulls out their hair. So if you had your choice between having Ezra as your pastor and Nehemiah as your pastor, you want to go with Ezra, right? 
Nehemiah could kick some major tail. He was he took the he took the the ultimate fighting course champ or uh, course or track and seminary. So, Pastor Ezra or uh, Pastor Nehemiah, <laughs> you don't want to go to him saying that I uh, I've been looking at things on the internet. <laughs> Take care of that. We'll solve that problem. <laughs> So I kind of had a little fun with that. But the reality is this is serious because both Ezra and Nehemiah responded differently. They both responded drastically, but both seemed to be appropriate. Because what are they doing? They're walking away from God. And Nehemiah goes on in chapter 13. This is what Solomon did. And don't you see what happened? So he's pleading with his people. He's getting in their face. This is a problem. He's going to confront it. But this invites us to ask an interesting question. Here's the question I think it invites us to ask. If Israel would ever stay faithful to God, if it weren't for a great leader watching over them all the time, looking over their shoulder, watching their every move, would Israel stay faithful? And there's a pattern in the Old Testament, is there not? Every time there's a good, great leader in office, the people's heart went with God. And every time they turn their back on the people, they're off doing idol worship. So it begs the question, would they stay faithful? Can they stay faithful if there isn't a great leader hovering over them all the time, directing them in the way that they should go? The answer, I think, is no. They can't. And do you see how this sets us up for Christ, the King of kings, who never turns his back on his people? Right? Jesus is the Ezra. He is the perfect Ezra. The perfect king who sets his heart to study the law, to do the law, and to teach the law. Jesus is the perfect Ezra, you see. Jesus is the king who comes to indwell his people. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he never leaves you. He's always watching over you. He is always the righteous king, turning your heart, convicting you of your sin, and showing you God's benefits that you can have in him. Jesus is the perfect Ezra. Jesus is the perfect Nehemiah. And he doesn't beat you either. That's good. So consider this. When the temple was built in Ezra 4, Ezra chapter 4, we see the rebuilding of the temple. There was wailing and, and cheering. There's weeping and praise. Why? Why the weeping? Here's why. There's the older generation, the old timers, that were actually around to see the previous temple, the first temple. And they said, this is so lousy in comparison. It's so small. It's so much less glorious than the first one. This isn't even a time of celebration. This is weep, weeping. It was fading right before their eyes. Here's another thing. In the first temple, it says that the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord filled the temple. In the second temple, there's no such mention of that. It never says that 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 God's presence actually fills the second temple. What is this alluding to? We had a conversation, Matt. I think this is what it's meaning. This Worship practice in this way of responding to God as the Israelites conceived it was fading away until the point where Jesus comes onto the scene, remember, and he says, tear down the temple and what? I will rebuild it in three days. What kind of a temple is he talking about? 
He's talking about a people that he's going to die for and rise again for and indwell. The reason why the presence of the Lord was never mentioned in the second temple is because God was working out a bigger plan. He was working out a plan to send a king that would indwell his people. If you are part of the bride of Christ, if you're part of the church, if you are in Christ, Jesus, the king, in his glorious presence, indwells you. And now you are this glorious temple. His truth is in you. His spirit abides in you. And it's only in Christ that we can truly set our hearts to do the word, to love the word, to study the word, and to proclaim it. Remember the, the, the conversation that Jesus had with the woman? Which mountain should we sell or worship God on? It's not this mountain or that mountain. It's not connected to a place. True worshipers worship him in what? Spirit and truth. That's what I'm getting at in this sermon. The truth of God's word and the indwelling of Christ by his spirit. That's what is necessary for making disciples. Is it not? So here's how I want to end it. I want to encourage us. I I hope you take this as an encouragement. We work with all of our might, but we sleep. We sleep well at night. What does that mean? It means we labor to be people of the word, to know the truth, and we hold the bar high for how we want to pass on truth to the next generation because it matters but we also realize it's not our parenting, as important as that is. It's not your homeschooling, as important as that is. It's not the Sunday school discipleship programs, as important as that is. Those are things that God will use, and those are things that we seek to build truth into the next generation and build truth into ourselves. But unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So don't parent as if it's on you. It's not on you. You will be responsible. You will give an account for your parenting and your education and what you taught your kids. But rest well, knowing you've done everything you can to instill a biblical worldview into your children. Rest well, knowing Jesus needs to come in and fill his temple. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your truth. I pray we would be lovers of it. Help us, Lord Jesus, to love you, to see your beauty, and to pursue you knowing that you pursued us and loved us. We pray for the next generation. Oh, that they would know you, Jesus. They would love you and they would worship you. I pray that you would honor your word and that you would work through your people and that unbelievers who don't see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, they would. May you use us, Lord God, to spill out from this place and bring those who don't see you to see you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.